Hello everyone and welcome to our Sustainable Wine Roundtable discussion about whether or not glyphosate has a role to play in sustainable viticulture. Very much looking forward uh, to hearing the views of our esteemed panel uh, and those of you joining us. Uh, I'm going to wait a minute or so in the usual way on Zoom to allow everybody who wants to join us to join us. But in the meantime, um, some quick introductions. Um, my name is Toby Webb. I'm one of the founders of Sustainable Wine Roundtable. Uh, I also run a business or, um, called Innovation Forum. And Innovation Forum focuses on sustainable agriculture, plastics, ethical trade, sustainable procurement, lots of stuff in sustainable supply chains that isn't wine. Uh, and it became clear a couple of years ago um, that um, there was some work to do in perhaps trying to help the wine industry join up thinking on sustainability. And so um, uh, it came out of a really a conversation I had with Richard Bamfield, MW, at 67 Pall Mall in London. I said, you know, is, whose job is it to try and coordinate global sustainability in wine? He said, well, maybe it should be yours. And I thought, oh, God. Um, <laughs> and then um, with a, a very, very um, important band of people, we've been able to set up the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, which, which came out of a website called Sustainable Wine that we started. And much credit... Most credit goes to those who helped us set up the Sustainable Wine Roundtable rather than to ourselves. And that's, you know, Waitrose, System Bolage, um, Saint-Michel is a member. Um, uh, Whitney and her organisation are as well, Domaine Bousquet, um, and many others have joined us uh, over the last couple of years. We have about 60 members now. and We have a website called sustainablewine.co.uk. That was the original site we had. Now, that functions as the magazine of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable. That's where we host events, we host podcasts, and so on. And then what we hope is that over time, the, the Sustainable Wine Roundtable itself, swroundtable.org, uh, really serves as the centre of excellence for the collective work of the members to try and drive progress towards some level of coordination in global sustainability practice. And one of the centerpieces of the work being done by the SWR is the development of what we call a global reference standard on sustainability. Now, there is some uh, form for these in other areas of agriculture. There's plenty of them um, in coffee and in cocoa and in palm oil and in soy, uh, rubber and cotton. There are many organizations attempting to draw together actors in a particular industry around sustainability globally. The SWR is trying to learn from those um, and to take on best practice in creating what we call a voluntary sustainability standard. Now that may be, in the end, or in the short term, a, simply a global reference standard, pulling together the best of what we know to enable those of you working in wine and sustainability to, to have a global reference point where you're not just looking at one country um, you're able to look globally and learn from each other. We also want to foster collaboration between actors and, and, and really get people to know each other so that um, if there's a problem in New Zealand that could be solved by talking to Luis and Catena Zapata in Argentina, well, maybe we can broker that relationship. Uh, and we've already seen some examples of that. So progress happens uh, bit by bit as well as through grand, grand gestures and initiatives. And the members of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable are in the process uh, of working with us in the Secretariat and some expert consultants to decide on the future uh, direction of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable Global Reference Standard. And in order to do that, we have to go through quite a long process, which is 
governed by principles and practices laid out by the good folks at places like the ICL Alliance, who um, offer the kind of governance framework for best practice in voluntary sustainability standards. So it takes quite a lot of time. One has to do a theory of change, a terms of reference, a series of member engagements and interviews in order to build up the evidence base uh, to sense check our approaches. And in the end, the members will decide the direction of the organization. It is not set in stone right now, but we do have a very uh, clear core mission and purpose, which is to foster collaboration and to share best practice in global wine sustainability. The rest of the detail will be filled in in the coming years by folks like yourselves and members of the SWR. Uh, and so I encourage those of you who are not members of the SWR to uh, talk to my colleague Tom Altram, who you've heard from uh, from about this event, uh, and join us uh, on the journey towards more sustainability or better sustainability. Uh, as many of you will probably note, uh, it is not a destination at the moment. It's more of a journey while we find out uh, where we go <laughs> and the endpoint changes as the science evolves. So as part of our stakeholder engagement, outreach, uh, whatever you want to call it, we decided to host a series of discussions about cutting edge issues in sustainability to, um, to try and have the debates out in the open, but to keep them civilized and to keep them friendly and to keep them constructive. So we thought, what better way to do the first one than to talk about glyphosate, <laughs> um, uh, a, a chemical which um, everybody slightly looks at the floor and shuffles their feet uh, when you mention, but um, is, like it or not, uh, highly used in agriculture. Now, it is also, we are very aware, a controversial chemical. There are many controversial chemicals out there. As we know, anything in a high concentration of parts per million will hurt you. Um, and um, while our intention is to focus more on the environmental aspects in vineyards in this discussion, um, we'd we are not suggesting that we're only going to talk about that, but we would rather focus on that for the point of this discussion. So when we have Q&A in the chat function, bear in mind that we are trying to focus on its use in vineyards, um, what might alternatives look like, what might be the consequences of those alternatives. That's our mission today. Now, there is something I need to say before we start. Uh, some of you may have seen an article which came out this morning by a lady named Pam Strayer. Um, she is um, a pro-organic activist who has um, taken part in our events before and uh, been very dominant in the chat function. Uh, and she's written an article uh, accusing uh, me of stacking the deck in this session by not having an anti-glyphosate scientist or anti-glyphosate person, presumably of her choosing, uh, who should be here to uh, to, to speak their views. Um, now, I don't particularly agree with her assessment, but the declaration I would make is that um, I, do, I do not have a commercial relationship with the selling of glyphosate, and neither does John Entine, who's joined us as a panel, uh, who is here as representing the Genetic Literacy Project. My relationship with Bayer, just to be absolutely clear, which owns Monsanto or merged with it, I have worked with their sustainability team over the last five years on sustainability strategy, and I work with their food value chain team with my company, Innovation Forum, uh, to help them understand what regenerative agriculture looks like for Bayer and what their customers, the big agribusinesses, want from Bayer in terms of enabling the regenerative agricultural agenda. That's the work we do with them, and I'm proud to do that work. <laughs> we are not working with them to promote glyphosate secretly. There is no conspiracy here, folks. 
um, at least not between me and John and us and Bayer and Monsanto. So I just want to make that absolutely clear. Um, and uh, I'm happy to, to leave that there. You can look for the article yourself if you want. I'm not going to post a link to it, uh, but if anybody wants me to send it to them, I'm, I'm happy to do so. So uh, that's uh, some basic stuff said at the beginning. What we're going to do now is have a quick round the room, um, just sort of 10 seconds each from our panellists, uh, and then I'll pick on one of them to make some opening comments on this subject of whether or not glyphosate has a role in the future of sustainable viticulture. One more thing to say before we start is that we are recording this on audio only and we will release it uh, along with all our other sessions as a free public podcast which goes out on our Spotify channel and, and other good podcast channels. So you will get a link to, to listen to this again and once the audio has been processed you'll be able to listen to it on your smartphone or send it around or, or do whatever you like with it. So that will be available. So um, let's do 30 second intros or less from each of our panel and then I'll pick on one of them to say something. Kevin, you are right beneath me on Zoom, so I'll come to you first. Just tell us who you are and for those who don't know about San Michelle, uh, tell, tell us about the organization. You got it. I'm Kevin Corliss. I'm the Vice President of Grape Resources for Site Michelle Wine Estates. I'm based in Washington State. Uh, I'm responsible for grapes grown in Washington and Oregon. Um, I, this is my 39th vintage with St. Michelle, so I've literally seen the industry grow from uh, from almost nothing to a, a fairly fairly large industry. Thank you, Kevin. Whitney, why don't you go next? Hi, everyone. Grateful to be here. Uh, my name is Whitney Beeman, and I am the Sustainability Program Manager of the New York Wine and Grape Foundation here in New York State. And my program offers environmental education, and we're also piloting sustainable certification for wine growers here in New York. Thank you. Franco. Okay, I'm Franco Bastidas. I'm from Mendoza, Argentina. I'm working in Romain Busquet. And we are an organic winery located in Uncle Valley that I was working here for seven years. Thank you. Luis. I'm also from Mendoza, Argentina. I work for the uh, Catena family. Uh, we produce um, some organic wine and some traditional wines. We have uh, 200 hectares certified organic, and we are moving to organic 1,000 hectares. So uh, very focused on that today. Thank you. John. I, uh, I'm the uh, executive director and founder of the Genetic Literacy Project, which is 10 years old, which addresses um, agricultural and biomedical um, advances in biotechnology. Uh, I've been writing about sustainability for 30 years. I actually am credited by many people of coining the term greenwashing back in the early 90s in an expose of the Body Shop Cosmetic Company. Um, and very interested in agricultural sustainability. Um, and I, I've been quoted as saying it's all tools in the toolbox. And I'm really looking for what we can learn from organic uh, agriculture as well as um, uh, more conventional means. Thank you, John. Um, and contrary to the accusation in the article uh, that said I was stacking the deck, I actually know what most of our panel is going to say right now about glyphosate. I know what John's views are because he and I have done a number of podcasts about it. And he and I don't always agree, but I enjoy the debate. But I have no idea what the rest of our panel think about this. Um, so um, I can't have stacked a deck if I don't know what's in it. Um, so Kevin, let's start with you. Um, what do you think about our title today? Love to hear your views. 
Okay. I, uh, well, I guess it's just a little bit more background. I'm definitely representing the producer view. I was literally uh, raised uh, in a, in a, on a vineyard. Uh, my father was a viticulturist for the Smuckers Company for juice grapes. And I actually distinctly remember uh, that when the first uh, jug of, of glyphosate found its way to my dad's farm, it was such an unbelievable uh, uh, revelation and, and uh, wonder material that uh, it was the talk of, of my father's friends and, and the industry at the time. Um, I, I work with uh, about 37,000 acres of grapes in primarily Eastern Washington, but also in, uh, in Western Oregon. The, uh, uh, give, to, to give a feel for the, the scale, most of these vineyards uh, in Washington at least are 250 to 1,000 or more acres. So they're pretty good sized vineyards. Um, the climate situation is uh, Eastern Washington is a desert. We get about, uh, uh, about 16 centimeters of rainfall, and most of that comes in November and February. So it's all irrigated agriculture, very dry. Uh, the soils are, are uh, uh, calcareous desert soils, sandy loams and loamy sands, uh, very low organic matter to, uh, to start with. Um, and, uh, and then the opposite is the, the case in Oregon, where where they uh, can and do uh, dry land farm uh, grapes and uh, they get uh, a lot of rain <laughs> and uh, the soils are very, are very high in organic matter and, uh, and definitely uh, different from, from Washington. Um, like I said, I, I am from the, per, the uh, perspective of the, of the producer and, uh, and having done this for a lot of years, um, I, I have kind of a, a middle of the road position on all pesticides. As a matter of fact, um, I like the uh, all the tools in the toolbox statement. That's definitely something that I've I was raised in and uh, continue to to use as a philosophy in an integrated fashion. And uh, we we uh, t our typical use pattern in Washington is uh, uh, for for uh, glyphosate in the uh, in the weed management program is to uh, uh, apply it or something similar early in the season prior to, to breaking dormancy. And then the only other use is uh, dealing with some very difficult to control uh, perennial weeds in the vineyard that essentially have no other, no, there's no other control uh, for them. Um, I, I think that, uh, um, from a philosophical standpoint, I think I, I uh, outline. I mean, my I was raised with a uh, with an IPM uh, background and ethic, and it it uh, truly has to be integrated. And I think that uh, my observation over forty years is that uh, um, it's hard to stay integrated, and growers tend to uh, go towards the economic. Uh, side of that scale. So you, you have to constantly be pushing yourself and your growers to integrate their, their, uh, their uh, control, whatever they're controlling measures and, um, and the, the, uh, the consequences for not doing so are, are very evident. Uh, the, whatever your target is develops resistance and then the, the tool is no longer useful. 
and it's it's happening in uh, across viticulture in Washington and Oregon with other materials, in, including uh, including glyphosate. Um, so I that's that's probably one of one of the biggest challenges that I find is is uh, staying in the middle of the road, and uh, and and uh, supporting and and uh, actually acting out acting on uh, a, an IPM uh, philosophy. Um, the the uh, the other real difficult part is uh, um, you know so, some of the things that are said in the press, and of course wineries are all extremely sensitive to press. Um, are dubious when it comes to the facts, and um, you know that's that's very difficult for farmers to uh, to deal with, um, and and it's it it's uh, unfortunately has it's part of the decision making practice pro process, but it's definitely not part of of IPM, uh, and uh, I. I I have found that increasingly more and more difficult, and I've seen um, uh, producers uh, for both our company and for other companies uh, just take tools out of the toolbox because they have a bad uh, press situation. And I think that that's dangerous because it, <laughs> you know I don't want to overuse an overused term, but that's certainly a slippery slope. Um, Scale-wise, uh, it would be very difficult to deal without. A lot of the tools that are in the toolbox, not just this one. Um, the, the, like I said, the scale of our our vineyards in this region are are uh, pretty pretty good size, and um, uh, small smaller operations certainly have a lot more alternatives um, than than larger operations. I mean, the 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 labor factor in larger operations is has become uh, absolutely hypercritical to the point where uh, some of the high labor um, agricultural entities and I have a, a best friend who's a nurseryman and he just closed his business because labor is that bad just just closed her down and it's happening so uh, things that reduce labor certainly uh, this is one tool that does um, that's it's very difficult to uh, to deal with that uh, and uh, and bal balance your operation Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, let me ask you one question just for a change of pace. And then we'll pass down to Argentina, to Lewis. Then we'll come back to Whitney and then we'll go to Franco. So my one question for you, and by the way, audience, you put your questions into the chat. Um, I'm going to go around the room, let, they, let everyone have their say. I'll ask them a question or two and then hand over or use your questions in the discussion. So we, we will get them asked. If you put an essay in, I may not have time to read it out. So please be concise. But Kevin, my question to you is in your 39 harvests, um, this is a, a chemical amongst many others that's been around for a long time. No one likes putting chemicals on their fields. You know, we we wouldn't do it unless we had to. And these things cost money, so there's no incentive to overuse them. But have you seen, with smarter science and better knowledge and all of that, have you seen a reduction in use to a more targeted, uh, more targeted use of it in recent years? Uh, the the short answer is is yes. Um, as there other as there are other uh, other tools to be used. Uh, uh, people are tending to in integrate those into the, their program, um, but there are also there are also producers that uh, are that are pretty much locked in the easy way, and they're going to need to be nudged back towards uh, 
some type of an integrated program, if, if for no other reason, just for the, for the resistance management uh, reason. No, that's a really good point. Well, let's talk a bit later on about, uh, uh, about the behavioral change aspects and the other tools in the toolbox. Uh, that's really interesting. Luis, uh, let me come down to, uh, to Mendoza uh, to hear your views on this. Okay, can I put a, a short presentation so I can show some things while I'm speaking? Or whenever, whenever anyone says short presentation, the alarm bells start going off for me. Uh, it's not, it's <laughs> not we... short, but I can do it shorter. I was... mean, just to show, uh, I've been working 23 years here yeah. in Catena, uh, managing vineyards uh, in the traditional way, using IPM strategies as kevin said uh, very similar i think uh, our weather is, is pretty similar to washington state in mendoza we have a very dry weather um, we get around 200 millimeters of rainfall a year uh, and we do use uh, glyphosate to to control the weeds especially under undervine in the undervine area. And then we use different strategies between the rows. Um, I think everybody knows that the reasons we have to, to control the weeds that because they affect the, the yield, they can affect the quality, uh, they can host different uh, other pests. Um, also, they, they interfere in the microclimate of the grapes and then can affect the quality and other disease problems. So we have the reasons, uh, but also you have uh, thresholds that you can manage as part of the IPM strategy. Um, and then, uh, as I told you, we have 200 hectares certified organic but now we are in the transition of 1,000 hectares. 1,000 hectares is a, it's a big surface. It's a, it's a lot of uh, vineyards. And today we are using mechanic control with different tools uh, in different soils uh, and with different widths. Uh, you have to adjust and calibrate the tools for specific type of soils, let's say, Soils with stones and rocks. It's not the same tool that we use for sandy soils or um, soils, soils without stones. Um, also, the type of uh, wheat that you have uh, need different type of tools. Um, and lately, we are doing the then I can show you images if we have the time. Uh, we started to run a, a research uh, decision working with the um, uh, drippers. You know, we, we have to irrigate to produce uh, grapes here in Mendoza. Uh, we do irrigation with drip irrigation system. And we are now running a, an experiment, moving the, the drippers to the center between the rows and where, where you have the more humid point is where most of the weeds will develop, right? So undervine is the critical area where it's more difficult to, to control the weeds. 
but between the rows is easier. You, you can work with machines uh, in an easier way. So we have this experiment and we need to use uh, less glyphosate undermine and much less. And I think with the time, maybe we can, we can avoid it. And the other treatment is to bury the drippers between the rows in the middle, bury it uh, half meter between 40 centimeters and 50 centimeters. And in that treatment, even between the rows, there are no, I mean, the, there is a little um, growth of uh, weeds because they don't have the humidity. We are in a desert here. Without water, without irrigation, the weeds don't develop. So burying the uh, drippers, there's not humidity in the surface, seeds cannot uh, start growing. And we have big expectations uh, um, with, this, um, with this treatment. And what's your view on, on the question? Does it have a future in your sustainable viticulture? You mentioned about reduction. Do you see viable alternatives, for example, uh, that you could use? And, and would they have an impact that you wouldn't necessarily want or even know about now? What's that sort of conversation you're having? Sorry, say it again. Repeat well, the question. You, you mentioned reducing use of glyphosate. Yes. What, what would you look to replace that with? And have you looked at the consequences of that? Yes, well, it's what, what I'm telling you. If, if you want to certify organic, herbicides are not allowed, right? Today, there is not a herbicide that is allowed by the organic uh, certification. Uh, so, and the other tools that we have is um, this mechanic control that of course will cause other problems. I mean, you spend maybe more fuel. Uh, there are consequences for sure. But uh, from the mm, chemic point of view, it's better for the soil. I mean, there are many studies that uh, you pointed a question a couple of days ago about the uh, biodiversity. And usually with organic or biodynamic um, farming, you have more biodiversity. There are studies that show that. Uh, but on the other hand, and speaking about sustainability, usually you have lower crop and lower growth. And then it's more expensive. The wine, the grape will be more expensive. So it's a balance, but uh, there are techniques, uh, mechanic control is that we use the most um by hand is it's very good but it's very expensive almost there's not labor available to do it um and then i think with this uh, research we are doing moving the the humidity to the center between the rows and especially if you can bury the the drippers there is a special dripper that you can bury and it's not blocked but we are um, experimenting. Uh, we did that for safe water. That was the main reason when we started, because here the water resource is limited. Okay. So we, we wanted to save water. 
from evaporation. Mm -hmm. Then we discovered that then the, the weeds don't grow under vine because they don't have the humidity there. And we are still adjusting because also the salinity will move in the, you know, out of the, the humid area. Mm -hmm. So we have to do more research, but we have a, a big hope. Okay, thank you. In the interest of time, I'm going to move on, um, come to Whitney, and then we'll go to Franco, and then, then to John. Um, I want to make sure we've got enough time to address the great questions that are coming in the chat. So thank you, Luis. We'll come back to many of those points, I'm sure, in the time we have left. Whitney, over to you for some thoughts. Hi, everyone. Um, so here in my part of the world, in New York State, we have a lot of rain. And heavy rains during the growing season can lead to a very vigorous undervine weed population, um, which can be problematic for reducing vine size and limiting yield. It can also lead to tall grasses that invite a tick population carrying serious diseases such as Lyme disease, which are a risk to our crew in the field. So it's certainly not without its trade-offs. Um, some of my growers find themselves mowing under vine on a weekly basis to manage the weeds. Um, others have found success with a combination of tillage, mulching, mowing, and cover crops. Although tillage is not recommended in our Finger Lakes region where we have very steep slopes and it can lead to erosion. Um, those vineyards that have found success with these alternatives tend to be smaller and scaling these practices can be difficult to do in a cost-efficient way. Um, there are also the trade-offs to consider when it comes to fuel usage for tractor passes and mowing uh, and GHG emissions, as well as labor costs to make multiple passes to control the weed population. Uh, about half of the vineyards that I work with in the sustainability program do not use herbicides and the other half use them about once a year. I know that all of the growers in the program would like to use their reduce their chemical usage. And so if there was a viable, scalable alternative, I believe it would be widespread uh, here in New York State. But at this time, we still haven't found a solution to um, make the cost-benefit analysis for eliminating that one application a year in our vineyards that are hundreds of acres in size viable. So one of my takeaways that I hope to get from this discussion is a recommendation for the next steps for those larger vineyards that I work with. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you, Whitney. Well, let's put that question back to the audience and see if anyone has any thoughts for you in the chat function. Um, there are lots of questions out there. I'm actually going to move on rather than ask you one now to, to Franco, and then we'll hear from John, So mainly so that we can get through the, the comments and questions, which are all much more informed than mine would be. So thank you for that, Whitney. And please, audience, if you have suggestions for Whitney and her producers on that topic, um, please do put them in the chat. Um, so, Franco, over to you. Uh, love to hear your your thoughts. Okay, thanks. Uh, I came from a family of viticulturists here in Mendoza. Uh, I was raised in this traditional agriculture without the use of any pesticides. So when I came to Domain Busquet, it was a pretty, a pretty nice challenge to produce uh, in an organic way. But I think that this tradition helped us to understand the possibilities of non-use of glyphosate and have uh, positive results. Yeah? I think that the use of, of glyphosate, uh, of course, has many benefits, uh, mostly in the short-term production, but within a long-term production, 
you will have some consequences. Yeah, uh, I think that the health net of our vineyards and our ecosystem uh, depends on the type of input that we use. So the glyphosate, I think it's not a solution. I think that maybe it's a simplification of trying to simplify something that, um, that it's really complicated, like the interactions of the living organisms, the microorganisms that we have in the soil and the different vegetation that we have, because not all the weeds are bad. I think that many of them uh, add to us many biodiversity that could be great to, be, uh, to have a healthy and sustainable soil. So uh, I try to resume because I think we are short in time, but I'm, I think in more in a, in a vineyard. I think that we all have the commitment to, to start to think more in a vineyard of organic, uh, of living organisms like, like the vines, and not only in a grape facility where we have to pick up the grapes and then start to do and put it anything uh, to, to have this production. I think that we have to be uh, with, a, with a view more, more open uh, and I start to think this type of alternatives that sure uh, it can work. I think that the margin can work really well. I think that the competition between different type of vegetables uh, uh, of different vegetation could be great to avoid the, the harm of the damage that we have with different weeds. Uh, and I think that we have the, the commitment to start to work with, uh, with this with, with more aggression. I think that we have to do our best effort to avoid this type of short-term solutions. So that's story. Thank you, Franco. Uh, I'm sure we'll come back to, to those points as well in the chat. John, uh, you've been listening to patiently to all of this. I, I know you're not a, a viticulture expert, but you spend a lot of time looking at agriculture. Do you see viable alternatives on the horizon for, for glyphosate? I mean, you and I have talked about precision agriculture before the role of technology. You know, it's clear that it's being used and that alternatives are challenging at this stage. Is, is that a fair description? What are your thoughts? Well, I want to reframe the discussion a little bit and then, and then jump back to that, which is I, I think we're asking the wrong questions here. Um, it's the, the question posed is, should we use glyphosate or, or, or alternatives? When the real question is, should we use herbicides or alternatives? Um, and we have to do some cost-benefit analysis and also think about what our goal is. And if our goal is sustainability, sustainability is a three-legged chair. I mean, it's nature, obviously the impact on the soil that glyphosate or any herbicide, chemical herbicide might have. Um, the people involved, is there human health issues? And what are the consequences for running a, a um, a viticultural operation, will you make money? And obviously glyphosate um, has been used uh, for, for many decades. Um, there's not one agency in the world uh, that, that suggests that it um, poses a serious harm to agriculture among the uh, other herbicides that exist. In other words, if you recognize that any herbicide will cause a problem, um, it will erode the soil to some degree, for instance, when you compare glyphosate against the chemical alternatives, whether it's um, flazosulfuron or glyphosinite or 2,4-D, um, glyphosate is clearly the best choice under those circumstances. We know that scientifically it doesn't um, affect uh, the worm culture. Uh, it's, there's only been like three or four studies, believe it or not, on glyphosate in the viticultural industry, all, almost all the studies have been on general agriculture. So probably a lot of it's applicable, some of it maybe not, um, but it suggests that it's uh, soil um, degradation qualities are very, very minimal. 
um, obviously they're real. It's a chemical. Um, we, we, if we in a, in a wonderful world, we love to sprinkle fairy dust on um, on on uh, crops and and assume that they would uh, that, that they would thrive. So we really are down to the issue of cost benefit analysis. What are the alternatives? Does mechanical weeding work? Well, we know it's about fifty percent less effective. Though there's all kinds of particular issues. We know that using um, soap ingredients, which are used by some organic farmers uh, to control weeds, can be as much as 10 times the, the cost. Um, and it's much less effective and it kills beneficial insects, unlike glyphosate, which has no impact on beneficial insects. Um, there's a few other alternatives that have been discussed. I don't think we're at the point where there are any alternatives. I think we're at the point where we have to just discuss costs and benefits. To what degree are you willing to sacrifice some degree of impact on your soil. Um, and the evidence suggests by every agency in the world, there's not one major agency that suggests that it's dramatic problems with, with uh, glyphosate. It's by far the least um, impactful uh, from, a, from a negative perspective of, of all the potential um, choices. So are we going to choose that? Um, or are we going to choose alternatives which will do the job and have less impact on the soil but you're going to lower your um, income and you're going to turn um, the wine industry into an elite enterprise, not only for the people who can do it, but for the people who can buy it. So it's all about trade-offs to me. Thanks, John. Uh, very clear. Uh, some great conversation in the chat here. Um, I'm going to come to, to Will's, uh, Will Drayton's question here. Uh, I'll just read it out. Um, the discussion about glyphosate Many other pesticides suffers from an enormous amount of distrust with farmers all, all, often stuck in the middle. What could be some tangible steps to de-escalate and harness the vast majority of growers, winemakers and retailers who are trying to do the right thing? John, you went last, so let me put that to you first. <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah, I think it's a hopeless situation. I wish I could be more optimistic to farmers. Uh, glyphosate is no longer debated as a science issue. It's a litmus test issue. Um, it doesn't matter. I mean, you cannot find an agency in the world from the health perspective that hasn't cleared um, glyphosate, including IARC, which is often cited by anti-glyphosate activists. Um, food trace uh, glyphosate in food poses no serious harm. It's about 100 times in, in, in California vinters. It's about 100 times less than could conceivably cause any harm. Um, yet it's been taken as a symbol of conventional agriculture. Um, by um, uh, an aggressive uh, dimension of the uh, environmental community, not the sustainability community, which I think is very embracing of a variety of uh, solutions to, to problems, including technologically based ones. So I don't think that this is an issue that can easily be resolved in the public forum. Um, it is literally a hot button um, cultural issue and you don't easily solve that over time. So I think that farmers are in the middle and they are they're just going to have to make hard choices. Um, but if we're hoping they're going to be, if they're hoping they're going to be bailed out by a scientific innovation, they won't be. Um, nothing is on the horizon. Uh, maybe a decade or two in, in the future, we might see something. Thank you. Kevin, do you agree with that assessment? I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I think that uh, growers are, are at that uh, no win. Uh, decision point right now and they're making those those decisions you know e even as we speak um i we have we have some uh growers in the in washington and oregon who are are 
deciding to use alternatives, even though they, they are not uh, economically sustainable, <laughs> and because because the heat's too hot, uh, and they're and they are literally caught in between. I think that uh, there there's two ways that that can go in, in agriculture. One is you raise your price, which everyone knows that doesn't work very well in ag. Period. And the other one is you don't grow grapes. That's that's pretty much the fork in the road. Thank you. Uh, let me bring in the other panelists to see if they want to comment at this point before we move to another question. Uh, Whitney, I assume you're you're still with us. Um, any thoughts on on what you've heard, and then I'll see what Lewis and Franco think about where we are now. Whitney. Well, what I would like to say is, barring a more complete solution, what we ask our growers who do do that single application of glyphosate per year to do is compensate for that in some other way um, for soil health or for water protection, et cetera. Um, what I can tell you as, is that all of our growers have cover crop in their row middles. Uh, very few of our growers irrigate. Almost none of our growers add synthetic nitrogen to the soil. And so these are all ways in which they are working toward their overall sustainability while we're still looking for possible solutions to herbicide at scale. Um, and this is all part of our philosophy of continuous improvement. Um, our growers realize that they are starting from square one and they are working to make their operations more sustainable. And we as a program also acknowledge that science doesn't have all the answers at this point. So we are doing that as a program as well. Thank you. Lewis, what do you think of? about this bit of the conversation. Sorry, Lewis, you're on mute. I'm sure I'm sure what you're saying is brilliant, but we can't quite hear you. <laughs> now, um, I, well, it's very interesting, um, the difference between organic and sustainable, right? Because some, sometimes you can work it organically and it's so hard that become unsustainable right for for economic reasons or well different reasons um, i think if we want to avoid the um, the use of glyphosate will be more expensive in general more expensive um, to control the weeds you can do some things um, there are now developing different technology some um, kind of small tractors that are like robots that can detect the weeds on the ground and spray directly to the weed, not just to, to the soil, just very accurate um, spraying to the weeds. But it's, um, I mean, it's expensive and maybe take time to, to be available for the, all the growers. Uh, and then you have th this strategy you know like i'm telling you moving the the humid point out of the undervine area then maybe i will use once a year glyphosate or maybe i will not need it uh, undervine and usually between the rows you control very easily with um, mowing or in, in a more easier and less and, and, and cheap way to control um and then, well, there are other chemicals that you use in the vineyard. In our region, it's very, very dry. So we don't have a, an excess 
of pressure of weeds or uh, let's say disease is very dry. So fungus don't develop much. So um, the climate that we have here is very healthy naturally for the vine. So depend on the region. Uh, other people use uh, animals to eat the grass, you know, in areas where you have grass. Uh, you have to adjust the strategy for the, the environment where you are, the weeds that you have, and the resources. Thank you. Franco, you've been listening carefully to this. Um, what do you think? Oh, I think that mostly we have to, I, I insist in the same point, uh, I think that we have to be very carefully to, to start to have new ways of production without the, not the use of glyphosate. I'm not only talking about glyphosate. Uh, I'm just talking about the monoculture situation that we are facing on. I think that this is going to be really careful uh, to our next generations to keep our biodiversity of each one of these areas that we are talking about. So I think that we have to have a main focus on, on the biodiversity that we are using it for using this type of pesticides. And by the other hand, I think that you, uh, you could have uh, 360 sustainability. Uh, we, we believe pretty much in the 360 sustainability. I'm not talking about only environmental side, also the economic and social side. I think that many growers can start to use this type of techniques. They're not expensive ones. They have so much uh, usage of technology, or, or etc. But I think that they can adapt in every situation and that could give to us uh, um, a long-term production with, with a lot more of, of healthness of, of our environment. So, um, yeah, that, that's my, my point of view. Uh, and I think that in these years, we face on that this is a reality that you can produce uh, an organic way. You can produce with a, with a very nice quantity. For example, I have the historic records of our uh, harvest year after year. Uh, from Novenkuskel, and we have the, the same yield per area that any conventional uh, farm. So uh, I think that we have to start to avoid or start to um, discuss some myths uh, of the organic production, of uh, the lower production or, or the lower quality. I think that it's not the, the case if you work correctly. Um, and again, I repeat, it depends on us. I think that we have to start to, to avoid the agriculture, uh, the, the recipes that we use year after year, um, because uh, we have to start to think about it and start to, to, to propose new techniques uh, and start to investigate about that, because uh, I don't think that we have so much time to continue to do the same year after year, not, not only in viticulture, also in all agricultural production. So that's it. Thank you. And Franco, do you see the debate where you are moving beyond organic to, to promote wider aspects of sustainability that achieves that can achieve the objectives that you've just mentioned? And is, is the conversation for you in your organization broadening beyond organic to look at the areas that organic doesn't touch to try and solve some of the challenges that you've just highlighted. I'm just trying to get a sense of, of your journey because you're you're so you're so what you you've, you've done you've worked so hard to create this kind of organic brand. I just wonder where where you go next. 
Yeah, um, sorry, I, I, I don't get the question. Just wondering, Bushke is well known for its organic approach. I suppose what I'm asking is, are you looking to change that to take in wider aspects of sustainability? And if so, what does that change in, in the way you work, uh, particularly when it comes to chemicals? Will it, will it affect that? We are doing year after year many capacitations, many, many talks with the different growers of Uco Valley. Uh, Uco Valley, it's, it's a very tiny region of uh, 14,000 hectares here in, in Mendoza. Uh, we are talking with them. We are trying to be partners in, in the work. Uh, many of them, at first time, they are so afraid to avoid the use of glyphosate or, or different chemicals. Uh, and they start to look at you like a, like a crazy guy that you, you, they're going to lose everything, and, uh, et cetera. But year after year, and when they get used to, to this type of, the, of techniques about the, the, me, the, kit, the mechanical labors, like Luis says before, or maybe the irrigation strategies, like, like Luis said before, um, that's a very constructive, and they start to realize that this can be possible, you know? Uh, for example, we, we bought, uh, we bought um, grapes for different growers, around the 40% of our production is fired for different growers, and these growers are starting to be organic for us. So uh, I think that it's a construction, and I'm very proud of that, because we can make a change in a little area, and I think that this is a duty that everyone can go ahead uh, uh, and not uh, lose the focus about the and the sustainability, not only by the environmental side, also the economic side. I think that many growers that they don't have work uh, can uh, sell their grapes or something here in, in Mendoza. They start to see a way to have a differential in the production uh, with the sustainability of, of his environment. So um, I think that this is a nice opportunity for us, not, not a prohibition. I think that we don't have to think uh, about glyphosate or another herbicide or pesticides in a prohibition or something that it's going to change us. I think that this is a really nice opportunity to change our view of the things and start to, to see this with a more uh, long-term uh, production. Okay, thank you. Um, as I mentioned, this is the first one of these discussions we're having, so we're learning as we go. We should probably have made this, as John mentioned, as a few of you have alluded to, more about herbicides. Um, but uh, maybe it was a bit clickbaity of us, but we thought the, the G word would attract people's attention. Then we could have this broader conversation, which we're now having. So apologies for that. We're learning as we go. Kevin, let me come to you in your 39 harvests. Um, is that is your experience reflected in some of the chat that we're seeing here in, 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 on the on the session around the impact of herbicides, glyphosate or otherwise, on soil microbiology? You know, did, was that really bad in the past when more of it was used? Is it getting better now as less is used? Is that too simplistic a question? Even what are your thoughts on 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 the soil side of things and microbiology, Kevin? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I'm not a soil microbiologist, so I have to. Uh, I am. I'm a horticulturist. So, uh, but this, secondly, I, uh, that you have to ha you have to ask that question in the context of of region, right? Um, the native soil in in eastern Washington, which is what I'm most uh, uh, aware of and have have experience with, um, has almost no organic matter. Uh, it's very challenging to get 
a diversity of plants to grow and and uh, we've we've actually uh, worked quite a bit with the university to try to get some diversity of plants to support uh, beneficial insects and and also to help build the soil as cover crops it's very difficult to do that without uh, without irrigation um, so but my experience has been that uh, over the course of of a 30 or 40 year cultivation that we actually see uh, moderated uh, soil pH and we have an increase, a slight increase. We're talking about still 1% organic matter, but, but a slight increase from the, the native soils. Um, that's, that's all circumstantial. It's, it's the output, the outcome of 20 or 30 years of, of farming grapes in a, in a, in a desert area. Um, but uh, not a, a factor of degradation. Uh, but at least not not that uh, not that one can tell. So that's I, I guess that's not not a very good answer. But uh, it, I have to play in the pond that I swim in. So thank you. No, that's very helpful. I appreciate this is a complex area, and um, we're seeing lots of uh, conversation in the chat about what studies show. John, do you have somewhere on the genetic literacy project site where you've put all the links to the the to, to the things that you've you've mentioned on this and other podcasts is that possible to do so there's a sort of one-stop resource if that if you have that already we could send that out afterwards so that we could all access the science is that something you have i think you're on mute john sorry i'm trying to protect everyone against my dogs um uh we, we do have uh what we call special sections on our website for instance um, you can go down, we have a place called GMO FAQs, which talks about, uh, these are pretty, very balanced, as you'll see when you read it, um, analyses of, of issues like sustainability, the impact of glyphosate from a sustainability point of view, from a health point of view. Um, and then we also have lots of other resources by going into the search engine and just searching for something. Now, I just posted in the chat, um, we put together a chart on someone who's raising the issues that glyphosate causes cancer, which I know that's a big trope in the anti-GMO uh, community, but, it's, but there's not an agency in the world that believes that uh, in, in terms of food traces, even IARC, which is often cited by anti-glyphosate activists says it doesn't cause it in trace elements in food, that it might cause it in um, uh, applicators who use it. Um, uh, but the largest study in the world, a 55,000 um, longitudinal study of farmers in the United States found actually the um, incidence of glyphosate among farmers is actually lower than in the general population. But there's no human health issues there. So the real issue is, very importantly, the, the soil degradation and the public perception issues that we have. In terms of soil degradation, as I just posted a, a few examples, there, it, there aren't many studies on it. Um, glyphosate breaks down very, very quickly historically. We know it doesn't affect worms. Um, its effect on microorganisms is far less than hoeing. It's far less than mechanicals. So again, we're interested about trade-offs. What do you, I mean, if you don't want glyphosate because you're worried that the, the, uh, people in the community who are concerned about sustainability, which is a complex issue, or organics, which is a defined issue, are going to react, then you have to react that way. So I would um, suggest people go to our site, put in some crosshairs, uh, in, in, uh, in the search engine. And we, we, we put articles that are critical of glyphosate. We carried hundreds of articles, especially 2,4-D uh, uh, and other herbicides. 
So there are resources out there, but I'll, I'll be honest, this is evolving research. Um, you're not gonna get one scientist or even a consensus where they, everybody says, don't use it or use it. You everything is always about trade-offs. And that's the point that I'm trying to underscore here. Um, if, if you don't wanna use herbicides, chemical herbicides, don't use them. There are consequences, but if you think you have a more sustainable operation, you won't. You might have a more organic operation, but it won't be more sustainable. Thanks, John. Well, let me go around to um, the, the other panelists and ask for some closing thoughts on this. Uh, Frankie, I could start with you. Same question for all of you. You know, you, you've all joined this Sustainable Wine Roundtable. We exist to, to have these kind of conversations and ideally to foster solutions and collaborations. Although we do appreciate, of course, how challenging this is. You know, there's never a magic bullet. Um, uh, Franco, what, what, would, what would you see as helpful that we could do or as, as a collaborative group of the SWR to try and move this debate forward? I'm just trying to get some practical ideas that we can then perhaps try and implement after this to try and make it not just an interesting hour of our life, but something we can then you know, make into practical action. So the same question for, for all the panel, but frankly, let me start with you on that. Uh, yeah, I think that um, I think that maybe we have to start to for my hand, and maybe it's going to sound like a contradiction, but I think that we have to start uh, to stop the, the, the propaganda against, let's say, like a demon. You know, I think that the main strategy and the best strategy to reduce the use of this type of herbicides in the soil, it's not trying to demonize them. We try to, um, we have to try to demonstrate to the other growers and herbiculturists around the world that it's possible another type of agriculture. I think that this type of strategy is going to be more sustainable. It would be more honest with the people because uh, I have many situations with different growers. That, for example, they say, yeah, sometimes uh, some guy can see me and say that we have to do uh, to remove the weeds with handwork. Okay, that's uh, that's not possible in an economic situation that we have here in Boston, Argentina, and I think in other world. So we don't have to be so focused in the provision or in, in the demonization of, of glyphosate. I think that we have to uh, we have to be in charge of trying to demonstrate different strategies to try to remove to replace this type of herbicide to uh, to another type of practices that are going to be healthier and a lot more productive and economic uh, affordable for for the growers thank you that's very helpful um some useful comments for us to digest there thank you franco whitney what would your thoughts be i know by the time we get to to kevin and john there might be some overlap but that's okay whitney so i'm just gonna put a wish out there into the universe um, the farmers that I work with who are not grape growers have great success using removable plastic tarps or biodegradable plastic tarps that can be disked into the soil to manage weeds throughout the growing season. And I'm currently not aware of any technologies that are set up for using those in vineyards. Um, if someone is, please let me know. I would definitely love to explore that technology as a recommendation for our growers. Um, but it is... Uh, something that I see work well in other areas of farming that I would love to see applied in grape growing someday. Thank you, Whitney. Luis. Well, I think um, we are, I mean, 
we all love the nature and we all are farmers and we do agriculture and I think everybody here um, would love to live uh, this world as maybe in, in a better place that we are now. I mean, I have a child and I would love to leave him a clean air, clean water. I mean, nobody wants here to, to contaminate, right? Uh, on the other hand, we have to eat and we have to do agriculture because we need the food. So I, uh, I think we are trying to use less chemical in general. Um, I'm 46 years old and believe me, when I got my degree, uh, almost 25 years ago, um, people were less interested on, on the effect of chemicals in the environment. And today we are more uh, conscious about it. And I think that is good. And we are like this sustainable group that we, we are part of. Uh, we are trying to use less pesticides. Um, and analyzing, taking the time to analyze effect because if you don't use uh, glyphosate you have to do a different thing to control the weeds um, I have a very good study um, made in Germany that put all many different type of studies around the world comparing traditional farming with um, uh, biodynamic and organic and there are some things some um, uh, biota some some insects that are more affected in the organic or biodynamic farming than in the traditional. There are some mites, for example, some mites that are very sensitive to sulfur. And in organic farming, biodynamic farming, you have to use sulfur for powder mildew. In traditional farming, you can use other type of control for powder mildew. So these particular insects are more present in traditional farming than in organic farming. So it's complex. I mean, it's, it's a, a, an ecosystem. And since you are putting vines in a place that were not living before, you are impacting the environment. And then you have to make decisions. And I think part of this, this group is to share experiences. And we are all trying to use less pesticides. And uh, but sometimes it's not easy if you want to if you want to produce uh, grapes in this case wine or whatever you, you are producing in agriculture um, and this is the goal I think to produce using less uh, inputs chemicals fuel whatever use less inputs uh, and this is the the reason we are we are here I think Lewis, thank you. Um, we are, I think, uh, technically out of time, but let me give the final word to, to Kevin as a, a wine producer. Uh, what are your concluding thoughts, Kevin? How can the, the Sustainable Wine Roundtable you know, help on the journey here uh, to do more than we are doing right now? No, I, I'll just kind of try to wrap it up real quickly. I think that, uh, that, that the, the place of the roundtable is to, to catalyze the conversation that includes all of the, the pictures, including the... The, that of the producer who's kind of stuck in the middle and uh, and also help, help uh, people in uh, in and around this, the topic in general understand that uh, one size does not fit all. Um, uh, regions are completely different and uh, what works 
in one place might not work in another. And the, the best way to get around that is to, uh, to work collaboratively to come up with alternatives uh, and, uh, and try to minimize harm in, in, all, in all ways. Well, amen to that. Thank you, Kevin. I don't think any of us could disagree with that. Um, thank you all for taking part. This has been a, a learning experience for us as to how these kind of debates would work on difficult topics. I've certainly learned a lot uh, about how we can um, improve next time and how we can have further discussions that might move things along, but also how the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, which some of you are members of, can uh, evolve what we're doing to try and foster progress uh, and help achieve um, what Kevin said so articulately um, before I started stumbling over my conclusion. So thank you, Kevin. Thank you to John. Thank you to Lewis, to Whitney, to Franco, and to all of you for your, for joining us. We weren't able to get through all the points and questions, uh, but I hope we've offered some insight and made the last hour of your life uh, in some way uh, useful. So thank you so much for taking part. This recording will be available afterwards, so we're going to send that to you. Um, and thanks once again for taking part. And please do stay in touch with us at Sustainable Wine and Sustainable Wine Roundtable. And uh, let's work together on the journey uh, towards sustainability. Thank you all so much and goodbye. Bye.